Rich Exner did a story a few years ago trying to figure out what is the best weather weekend in Northeast Ohio. And it's this weekend and last weekend. We're in the center of it, according to historical records. Based on more recent records, it's the last weekend of September. Whatever it is, it's beautiful out. Hope you enjoy yours. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And Layla, you are coming in for a landing on probably the most significant project we've ever been involved in, which launches Monday. How exhausted are you? Oh, man. But I'm riding high on the adrenaline, right? That's how it feels when we do something like this. So can't wait to see uh, the launch of this on Monday. It's, uh, it's going to be great. Well, I, what I've been comparing you to is what you discussed last week. You're on Top Thrill Dragster, all nervous because the light is red. It's just yes. turned yellow, and it's about to go green. I know. When you first said that, that that hit the nail on the head. That's exactly how it feels. Well, <laughs> be it's, propelled into the stratosphere. <laughs> it's an entirely new way of covering education. It's terrific. I can't wait for people to see it. It's been you know, more than a year in the work. So boom, come Monday, look for Cleveland's promise. Let's begin. Ohio Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor could not get Ohio's Republican elected officials to follow the state constitution and draw fair legislative maps. Now, how many, no matter how many times she and her colleagues found the maps that were drawn unconstitutional. So Lisa, what is Maureen O'Connor going to do about that after she retires at the end of the year. Yeah, uh, Chief Justice O'Connor gave her State of the Judiciary Address yesterday in Columbus, and from all reports, it was a packed house. She said during that speech that she wants to get involved in efforts to get an independent commission to draw maps, get that on the ballot as a constitutional amendment. She says the legislature sure isn't going to do it, and she said it will take many groups working together, gathering the hundreds of thousand signatures needed to put this on the ballot. Uh, League of Women Voters Ohio President Jen Miller says uh, their group and others are researching a future ballot campaign, and that would include establishment of an independent commission. She said that we welcome anybody who's serious about taking Ohio back for voters. So, yeah, it sounds like O'Connor, you know, she was the swing vote. She was the only Republican that voted with the Democrats to find these increasingly gerrymandered maps unconstitutional. But um, she said during her speech, she said, this had no discernible effect to curb gerrymandering. All these efforts and all these maps were drawn. And she said that, uh, you know, this is, she's going to fight it when she retires. I think that's awesome. In her original concurrence, she had said, look, Ohio, you thought you fixed this, but this is what happens when you put these guys in charge. I do want to point out that the League of Women Voters had a ballot initiative back before this all changed and got bamboozled into dropping it by the legislature's promise to reform it. That reform is what O'Connor is pointing out has failed because none of these Republicans did what they had sworn to do when they swore to uphold the Constitution and follow it. So it's time to just rip it away from their hands altogether and go another way. Good for her. I, I, she's been a breath of fresh air as Chief Justice. We are going to miss her when she's gone. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How can you have a report card without grades? 
And what did the new Ohio school district report cards without grades show in the first iteration using star ratings? Have schools gotten better after they had the pandemic harm? Laura, I suspect you like this because you were always the gold star student. (laughs) Yeah, but I've also liked to get like, you know, the good GPA. So but it's funny because. I bet you a lot of kids would like report cards without grades. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And actually, my kids, for the first how many years, it was like a three, two, one system. It was incredibly complicated. And A's are easy to understand. Except there are five rankings, five stars through one stars, just like A through F is five rankings. So it's not really that different, except there is no overall star number. So it's not like you can be like, oh, I got a 4.9. There is a performance index number though. So you can look at how every school is doing and just like look in numerical order. The first in the county in that number is Solon, which is not a surprise. The second is Rocky River. But actually, Solon is one of the four districts that got perfect fives in Northeast Ohio. It's Aurora, Chagrin Falls, Highland, and Solon. And that's the five that we're looking at are achievement, progress, gap closing, graduation, and early literacy. So that's what they're being graded on. And full disclosure, my wife teaches in Solon, <laughs> so it was a very proud day for them. You know, you gave it the the, the parallel comparison to A through F, but if it were really parallel, it would be a six-star system with no fifth star, right? Because A through F, we don't include the E. Yeah, I guess. I guess that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Just thinking about numbers. But the good news is that we're showing a little bit of improvement from last year, which was really affected by that COVID school year. Because remember, these tests were taken last year. That was the first full year back for many schools because they were in 20... 2020, 2021, they were all hybrid. Some were remote. It was it was all over the place how these schools were doing. Last year was a pretty normal full school year, even if they were wearing masks for a part of it. So we did see improvement. Fourth grade English uh, language arts proficiency, ra- proficiency rates, they were in 2019 about 50, uh, 63%. They fell to 56% two years ago. Now they're back up to 62.5%. So I mean, we're getting better. We're not as good as we were before the pandemic. And I think that's really important to talk about is that we're still, we're going to see the the effects of the pandemic for a long time. Well, I said at the top of the podcast, we got this enormous education project starting Monday based in a Cleveland school. And there was some actual good news in the report cards for Cleveland schools, kind of not what we expected. We thought that because Cleveland kids were home for all the important reasons they were kept home, that there'd be some suffering. And indeed there was. But what was the kind of surprise in this for Cleveland? They did better than they thought. I mean, they did better than the other urban large school districts in the state. So especially in student growth and closing educational gaps. And we, uh, Jeremy Peltzer did a nice job. He talked to uh, Eric Gordon, the CEO who's leaving at the end of the school year. He said the pandemic hurt early literacy efforts because kids could not watch language being formed because of masks that they were wearing and their classmates and their teachers were all wearing. And then graduation rates were also suffering because of classes that held remotely, some kids just didn't go. So you look at those are very real effects. What I'll be interested to see is how the kids just entering the system do. Uh, if you talk to teachers today, they'll tell you that the, the, the latest batch of kindergartners and first graders 
are way behind in development. You know, these are the ones that were two and a half when the pandemic began and their parents were home and they lived with all the anxiety and they are not anywhere near where they need to be as, as normal kids coming into the system. And can the districts turn that around and catch them up? It'll be interesting to look at these tests in five and six years. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's all sorts of effects. Probably the kids I think that are in second grade now is like a smaller cohort because they didn't want to send them to kindergarten remotely, right? So they waited a year. So that could have some effect on them too. So I think we're just going to keep seeing the fallout of, of emotional and behavioral and mental health needs mixing with academics. You're listening to Today in Ohio. After getting blasted for not providing stimulus cash to the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center and then misleading people about why, did the Cuyahoga County Council try to atone with a big batch of cash for another nonprofit serving women in need? And yes, Layla, we are talking about the council's $66 million in slush funds. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Cuyahoga County Council this week approved $11.8 $11.8 million in spending on 19 projects throughout the county. This is out of that $66 million in American Rescue Plan Act funds that have been carved into 11 equal pots for each council district to allocate as they see fit. And this latest list includes a lakefront park in Bay Village and an animal shelter slash recycling center in Lakewood and a police shooting range in Rocky River. But the largest single project funded in this batch is $2.7 million for the Hitchcock Center for Women, which provides addiction treatment services and, and housing for women. And what's really interesting about that item is that the funding includes a million dollars from District 7, $500,000 from District 10, and a, more than $174,000 from District 2. And then another million from the general fund. And yet, remember that when the Rape Crisis Center came to council and asked how to apply for some of this money from these these, uh, ARPA funds, Councilman Scott Tuma told them he couldn't provide any funding because they're not in his district. Yeah. Well, Well, I got news for you. The Hitchcock Center is on Ansel Road in Cleveland, and that's in District 7, Yvonne Conwell's district. And yet Cheryl Stevens, to the east of her, and Dale Miller, way out west, both kicked in considerable funds. So if you ask me, I don't know if this is atonement as much as it is further evidence of just total lack of uniformity in the way they're operating this so-called community grant program. Well, they, and they were dishonest. When this first came up, they they went hard at that, that, uh, that rape crisis center never applied. It never applied. And they just blew all sorts of smoke because they were getting pounded for, for building a golf clubhouse while sticking right. it to the rape crisis center. Lucas Deprile got all the email and showed they're just full of it. It's not true. The Rape Crisis Center tried to get on the action, but because the county council is only giving the money to their favored people, they wouldn't let them. And mm-hmm. and they they took a beating for this. So I kind of suspect they've turned around and given it to them like this intentionally. I I got an email yesterday from a a reader. You know, I hear from a lot of readers and they're very upset with the county council. They think they're not serving the public interest. And they watched a hearing in which the county council was talking about the jail. 
And they sent a note and saying, you know, what really struck me was the arrogance that Tuma and Gallagher basically said to the crowd, we know more than you do. So we know what we're doing. Shut up. I mean, that was the that was the what the impression was of somebody tuning in taxpayer tuning in to watch these guys in action because everybody's trying to understand why they're doing all these controversial things. And they came away with these guys basically saying, shut up, public. We know what we're doing. You don't get a say in this. And man, that is not the way you're supposed to behave as an elected leader. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a lot of hubris. And, and you know, there, there, there are just no rules and there are no parameters around how they decide who to fund. And if you're a nonprofit that needs some of this funding, you just have to know which council member to appeal to. And that is exactly what makes these slush funds so dangerous. We also did hear from Jack Tron because I, he read Lucas's story and he said, you know, I did try to get a competitive application process. I did. And I couldn't get it done. So I think there are some members of the council that are not really pleased with the way this is going. They haven't been outspoken about it, but look, the heat is on. They they did this in a very sleazy fashion and the whole world is finding out about it. And yet they sit at the meeting and basically say, you guys shut up. We know what we're doing. We're in yeah. charge. Yeah, I mean, I keep coming back to that moment in the story where Dale Miller tries to tell them, put this application on our website, make it available to people. And the the staffer for council responds and says, I don't think they want it open like that. <laughs> no, because they want to give it to their friends. Yeah. yeah. It's just a bad system. It's today in Ohio. As if with all the deaths, the suffering and the long term COVID conditions were not enough, Now, a case Western Reserve University research group has found yet another reason you really don't want to get the coronavirus. Lisa, this is kind of scary. What is it? Yeah, this study was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease earlier this uh, this month. Those they found in this study that those 65 and over who got COVID were 50 to 80% more likely to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's than those who didn't get COVID. Women 85 and above are at the highest risk. Uh, Researchers used data from 6 million patients that were treated for COVID between February 2020 and May 2021, all 65 and up, without Alzheimer's disease. But it appears that this relationship goes both ways because another study by Case Western Reserve indicates that dementia patients are two times more likely to get COVID. So, uh, you know, Professor uh, Pamela Davis says there's still a lot to learn about this COVID dementia connection. They say a big question is, does the virus cause Alzheimer's or does it just exacerbate existing disease? But I think if you're 65 and over, you need to get that shot. Well, I couldn't see in the study whether the severity of the virus correlates with the likelihood of getting it. It was it was pretty much A B. If if they got it, they had this gigantic increase in in the chances of Alzheimer's. I, I would like to think, because <laughs> I'm old, that that the people that have gotten it with the most severity have the 
the more increased risk and that the people who have gotten the booster shots and things and don't get quite the same level of symptoms may not be as vulnerable, but that's probably just wishful thinking. Well, they did, and they didn't really draw a line between those who were hospitalized and those who weren't. According to the article, I didn't see that. So yeah, but they're just kind of now diving into this. But I think the interesting or the scary thing to me is it's kind of a two-way street, you know, dementia and COVID seem to be linked somehow. This is such an unusual virus. There's so many viruses in the history of humanity, but this one, it just has all these weird things that it does, the long haul symptoms. And, you know, we've read about so many. And now this scary stuff stories on cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Let's stick with the virus. Now that we've scared people into thinking that they need to do stuff. Laura, how easy is it to get the shot? Is there much demand for the new vaccine, which protects you against the latest Omicron variants? You can get it. It is the demand is much higher than they've seen recently, but you can still find appointments. I had set one, um, up for today at noon at a CVS and I was going to get Moderna, which made me a little bit nervous because I all my shots have been Pfizer and I haven't had a problem. But yesterday they canceled. They just said they didn't have the vaccine to to provide. So I logged on, found one at Walgreens in my town at like in the afternoon, but all of the morning slots were gone. So there are people getting this booster shot and that's what the pharmacies are reporting. The pharmacies, the health systems, they're all saying they're seeing this strong uptick in demand similar to the first uh, few weeks when the kids five and under were allowed to get it or the kids six to 11. It seems like there are people that have just been waiting until it's approved. And then they're like, I'm, I'm going to sign up right away. It'll be interesting to see how long that increased demand lasts because if as you know, only about half the people in Ohio who got the original vaccine have gotten any boosters. I did have a more unusual experience this time around. The last times I was able to just go to a local CVS, you have to schedule it. But when I was one of the first in line when this came out a week and a half ago or whenever it was, and nothing close to me had it. I, there were a bunch that were six, seven miles away, which it just was unusual. But I had my pick. I could have gone to any. When my wife did it about a week later, she had the same experience. I don't know if it's just the way CVS was spreading it around, but it was there. You could get it. You did notice there was a difference, though, in the availability of Pfizer and Moderna. Yeah, they're telling you up front. Like when I looked at the last one, it was like, this location has Pfizer. This location has Moderna. Remember, I think Pfizer is the only one you can get if you're 12 and up. You got to be 18 to get Moderna. But I think it's great to be able to have your pick because before it was just like, whatever you can get, that's what you're going to get. And then the health systems are getting it out to their you know, their doctor's offices. So if you have your regular physical coming up, you should be able to go in and get your shot at the same time. Also flu shots. I'm getting both today. You got both last week. So hopefully it's all fine and good. And I only have to deal with this once. Yeah. My wife got it. There was a guy there getting the flu shot and the coronavirus shot and the second shingle shot. And I would not recommend that. (laughs) The second shingle shot was the one that really, really destroyed me for a day. Uh, So it's available. People should get it because, as we just said, there's a lot of complications that can follow if you get COVID. And this is one that's supposed to keep you from getting sick at all, not just if you get sick, you don't get as as sick. This is one that they say they're still waiting for the final 
results, but but it was like eighty five to ninety percent protection. And I should note that they expect kids, at least in the six to eleven range, to be able to get this in a couple of months. Not approved yet, but hopefully in time for the holidays and that December first spike that they're forecasting, my kids will be protected. And for those of you hearing that different sound in Laura's voice, she does not believe she has COVID (laughs) as she speaks about this. You're listening to Today in Ohio. One of the biggest challenges for employers in the suburbs of Cleveland is getting people to work via public transportation. Public transportation does not have stations or stops near near where the employers are. So what is a Columbus tech company's solution to this Northeast Ohio problem, Layla? Yeah, this is this is known as as the last mile problem. It's when, you know, public transportation kind of dumps you off at a bus stop somewhere, but it's still quite a ways from where you need to be for work. And as a result, you either end up paying an Uber to take you the rest of the way or you have to quit your job because transportation is just totally inconvenient and, and expensive. There are estimates that say that a person could end up spending $5,000 a year covering that last mile of their commute. So this company, Share Mobility, is aiming to address that service gap. They're a startup headquartered in Columbus, as you said, that is already operating in central Ohio and 14 other states. And now they're partnering with the Greater Cleveland RTA to provide rides to workers in Solon and Bedford Heights. They're two cities that data show get a lot of workers traveling to them. And essentially, this program will extend the bus lines, getting employees from their last bus stops to their jobs. It it works like this. So employees will schedule a ride in advance using Share Mobility's app or website. And then the company software will then schedule what they call a hyper-efficient route and send drivers to take one or several workers at a time to their destination. And those arrangements can be made months in advance on this very predictable schedule. So RTA approved an 18-month pilot program in May for this, and the Transit Authority will split the cost and pay half or up to $300,000 for the service, and it'll be free for workers and serve riders on the 19, 40, 41, and 90 bus routes. Employers who sign up for the program and local governments will cover the other half. So just a very interesting model that could really solve problems for employers and workers alike. You know, it it solves the problem of getting them there, but what it doesn't change is the huge amount of time that a worker must invest in getting to work. We know because of the work we did in our poverty series that that the traveling by public transportation to an employer like that, it's not you get on a bus and you get there. You get oh, on a bus sure. and then you change and you got you know, so you go, you wait for your first bus and then drops you off somewhere else and you wait for your second bus and now you'll be waiting for this company to get there. If you think about the block of time that people in poverty or of lesser means are giving up just to get to and from work compared to people that have the means for their own transportation, it's another huge hurdle in trying to overcome poverty. That's true, but I'm not sure how how one can make that, how can anybody ease that part of public transportation? It is just kind of part of how how it works. But But what the founders of this company say is that they believe it will, in the end, fight the labor shortage because if it eliminates that last mile issue as a barrier to employment for some people, and, you know, likewise, companies could sign up for this and offer it as a perk like any other benefit of the job. It's a win-win for the employers and the employees. 
Um, you know, a lot of times people just can't can't stick with the job because it is just too laborious to to bridge that gap between where the where the bus drops you off and where you have to end up. That that is the hardest part of their commute. But yeah, I, I totally understand what you're saying. It is it is not easy to travel by RTA uh, or you know to to get from point A to point B it takes much longer. If you don't have your own vehicle, for sure. But if I could, if I could jump in here, I think part of the larger picture is that people can no longer live near where they're employed because they can't afford it. You know, so they're moving to areas. You know, they're they're moving further and further away from their employers. And you know, I don't know that any regional transit system is is nimble enough to make those adjustments. So I think this is a great mm-hmm. step in the right direction. But you know, people just no longer can really live near where they work. Hmm. What we need is an enormous fleet of self-driving cars that picks you up and takes you where you need to go. And then then you get rid of the buses and move on. That's my pipe dream. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. Attorney Sabod Chandra, former law director for Cleveland, is well known in Northeast Ohio for representing major clients like the family of Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old boy killed by Cleveland police. He really does make wrongdoers face the music. But this week, it was Chandra facing the music at the mercy of a judge himself. Lisa, what did he do? What is his penalty? And is he taking it lying down? (laughs) We all know he's not. (laughs) But uh, Geauga County Common Pleas Judge Carolyn Paschke found Chandra in contempt of court. She fined him $100 and ordered him to undergo 10 hours of professional conduct attorney training. So this ruling involves a violation of Paschke's order that was trying to keep some information in the UH fertility clinic lawsuits off of the public docket. So Chandra filed a sealed info on the public docket involving former fertility center director, Andrew Botnager. Um, you know, and then Paschke said, well, you know, I don't, I'm not sure that this should be in there. So she ordered Chandra to, she said he probably accidentally included it. So she removed those documents, set a hearing about whether it should be refiled under seal well, Chandra redacted one patient name and refiled it three hours later. And I think that's what the judge got mad. She said that Chandra intentionally violated an unambiguous order, She that he trampled the university hospital's rights. And uh, he ruled with, and this is a ruling that she made without prompting from UH attorneys, because Chandra attorney Todd Peterson said, well, they didn't have any intent to violate. And they alleged that Poshke made the ruling after UH attorneys reached out to her. Well, there, there's a couple of things that are worth mentioning here. Chandra did realize he included a patient name. And his position is, that's what I thought the judge was alerting on. That's why I took it out and refiled. I, I remember at the time thinking, you're going to get slammed because she, she took that out of the public record and you put it back in. But, but let's not forget what the judge is doing here. This was a scandal at UH. They, through their incredible negligence, allowed embryos to perish, depriving countless families of the ability to have children. I mean, this is one of the worst things that the hospital has done in a long time. Botnager was was alleging what happened here, the level of their negligence. And this judge, who's supposed to represent the public, is protecting the hospital by sweeping that stuff all under the rug. Now, when when Chandra put this into the public record, we all got hold of it. So, the, the you know, you can't really put that genie back in the bottle. But 
let's think about what the judge was doing here. She was trying to protect the big institution using the court system that taxpayers pay for. The taxpayers mm-hmm. deserve to know what university hospitals did here. It was scandalous. And Chandra is trying to get the, do the right thing by spreading that. Did he, did he, is he in contempt of court? Well, he says not, right? His attorney's going straight for appeal. That is correct. Yes. But I will say this about, if I could, about, and I've always felt this way about the former fertility center director, Andrew Botnager. I, you know, he was in absentia. He, he didn't even live in the state. He tried to blame, you know, UH administrators and staff for this, this failure that in 2018 that destroyed 4,000 eggs and embryos. So, yeah. Yeah, you could be right there, Chris. I mean, I I think that he's the the problem, not the admin and staff. He was, you know, running this fertility clinic from another state. He would come to Ohio maybe once a month, you know. So, but but the problem is we don't know what we happened, don't. and and because everybody settled out of court, and so we finally had some information. Whether whether you find it credible or not, we were finally seeing some discussion. There was some fascinating information about the tanks, that they weren't getting delivered. People weren't working at the right hours or something. But but what is inexcusable is that this happened. There needs to be a full accounting. And this judge is covering it up and and now slapping Sabot around because he did this. So interesting case. I, I, I'll be surprised if he prevails. And he didn't get slammed that hard. I mean, $100 fine and 10 hours of more training. I don't think it will change Sabot Chandra's manner. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're going to go long. we got two more to talk about. The Biden administration is stamping out the word squaw on federal lands because it is derogatory. So what are the reservoirs, streams, island, and bay that have new names in Ohio, Laura? So there are six, all in the northern half of the state. I'm just going to go through them. Squaw Harbor in Ottawa County is now Oak Point Harbor. Squaw Island in Sandusky County, now Winnowis Island. Little Squaw Creek in Trumbull is now Little Gerard Creek. Squaw Creek in Trumbull County is now Gerard Creek. Squaw Valley Park Lake in Trumbull County is now Gerard Valley Park Lake, which is a mouthful either way. And Squaw Valley Lake in Stark County is now Liberty Valley Lake. And this is part of a trend. We were talking about it yesterday, Lisa. You mentioned some very well-known facilities across the nation that had Squaw in the title, and in the last few years, they've changed their names. Yeah, uh, Squaw Rock was my childhood hangout, the South Chagrin Reservation. And when I moved here back in 2018, about a year later, they renamed it to Henry Church Rock. There was I don't think there was even any news on it. They just changed it. Yeah, I didn't and know Squaw that. Squaw Valley, the big um, ski resort in Tahoe is something less um, (laughs) derogative, but unknown now. I'm not sure what it is, but the the secretary of the interior, Deb Halen, she's the first indigenous person to lead this cabinet agency. And she says she feels a deep obligation to use her platform to make sure that public lands and waters are accessible and welcoming to all. And that starts with removing racist and derogatory names. And this is not the first time the department has done this in the past. They've removed derogatory names for Um, black people and um, Native Americans, I believe. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Last one. We talked earlier this week about how people watching the Browns game on television this Sunday from elsewhere in the nation are going to see and be curious about the odd mascot that is Brownie the Elf. It's been painted on midfield in giant size, which I know is contradictory for an elf. 
To help anyone confused about Brownie, we put together the history of this elf. Layla, it's not that deep a history. What did we find out? I thought this was fascinating. He has been around forever, literally since the team's first season in the old American Football Conference in 1946. Owner Arthur McBride uh, named the team after its coach, Paul Brown, but they needed a mascot. And, you know, naturally, when trying to brainstorm a fierce football mascots, a little elf called a brownie from Scottish folklore came to mind. So, you know, and anyone involved in Girl Scouts knows this legend because brownie is <laughs> one of the scout ranks. But anyway, in folklore, the brownie is described as this cantankerous little mischievous spirit with elf-like features who comes out at night to do chores of all things around the house and who invented the chocolate sweet treat we know as brownies. So, I mean, you can be as cantankerous as you want at my house as long as you're doing chores. I don't care. <laughs> so, and you bring the brownies, right, Layla? And make the brownies. That's so weird. So the first iteration of the Browns brownie logo was inspired by a Sears and Roebuck ad. And then another version of brownie, the one we know of the elf running with the football, first appeared in an ad promoting the Browns' inaugural game against the Miami Seahawks in, in September of 1946. We saw the Brownie really return to prominence in the 90s after the team's return in 99 because the new team owners, the learners, had an appreciation for him and would use him on branding and merchandise. And we've, of course, had the sidelines Brownie mascot for several years running around the crowd. And then finally, we get this angry, ready-for-battle version of the Brownie that appears on the field this year. That was made popular in 2018 by Coach Stefanski, who in 2020 started wearing a hoodie with that image on it. And 2020 was the Browns' big playoff year, so they could hardly keep those hoodies on the on the shelves in the, in the uh, team shop. So when it came time to decide what to paint on the field, they surveyed fans and discovered that among 100,000 respondents, most of them preferred the Brownie over the traditional orange helmet. And that's where we are today. Yeah, people are going to be confused by it. Also, it's part of Plain Dealer history. A Plain Dealer illustrator was one of the iterations, right? Yeah, and I thought that 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 uh, illustration. I mean, it, was it just me, or was that brownie holding like a rifle or something? That was pretty aggressive. <laughs> that, yeah. Well, Plain Dealer doesn't have the greatest history about drawing sports mascots. We'll just leave it there. <laughs> it's today in Ohio. That does it for a Friday. Sorry we went long. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. We'll be back Monday talking about the Lee Weingart and Chris Ronain showdown before our editorial board. Very good conversation. It'll give people something to think about as they go to the polls. Come back with the conversation.